Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. If you're a Christian, you believe in a God who acts, who does miracles. He has not created a world and wound it up like a a master clockmaker to leave it to be governed by the natural laws that he has instituted. No, on the contrary, if you are a Christian, you believe in a God who, according to his pleasure and his good and sovereign will, breaks into the world that he has created with all of its natural laws, and as he pleases, does as he wills according to his great plan of redemption. If you're a Christian, you must believe in miracles, that God created the world out of nothing, that in Exodus he split a sea in half and rescued his people, that he fed his people in the desert from the heavens, That through the hand of his son Jesus, he did more miracles than there would be room in the world to contain if we wrote all of them down. That he fed the multitudes, that he raised Jesus from the dead. And then through his people, his apostles, he continued these acts of miracles to authenticate their ministry. But maybe the grandest miracle of all is the mystery of the incarnation that God, the Son, has become a man. C.S. Lewis, the great British intellectual in the mid-1900s, said that every other miracle, listen to these words, every other miracle either prepares for or exhibits or results from the incarnation. In fact, he goes on to say that the credibility of every other miracle depends on its relation to what he calls the grand miracle of the incarnation. And any discussion of any miracle, apart from the central miracle, the grand miracle, is futile. Well, if Lewis is right, or even if he's partially right, then understanding the incarnation and knowing why it is so important is of utmost importance to the Christian. It is, as J.I. Packer says the supreme mystery or the most staggering claim of Christianity. And we want to think deeply about the incarnation this morning because we believe that theology doesn't just exist for itself, but true theology should lead to true doxology. Or said another way, that the true study of God should lead us to the right worship of God. Or knowing God should lead us to living for God, which leads us to our maximum joy. Now, we're not going to study one particular text today, as is our custom. We have been studying the Gospel of John, and in January, we're going to pick back up where we left off at the end of John 7, beginning of John 8. But rather, today, I am going to read several selected passages, maybe many passages, that teach us, give us a glimpse into the wonder of the Incarnation. And so I'm going to read first from John chapter 1, and then Galatians chapter 4, 
Let me read John chapter 1, verse 14, which is maybe the central text in the New Testament about the incarnation. This is what the writer John says. And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now this is the same Son that John fought, read for us in the call to worship from Colossians 1, who is the eternal Son of God, no beginning, no end, through whom the world was made. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want to ask us two questions today and hopefully answer them from the Scriptures to help us understand the Incarnation. The first is, what is the doctrine of the Incarnation? And secondly, if I could ask it so crudely or simplistically, how does the Incarnation help us? So what is the Incarnation? And how does the incarnation help us? Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this great truth. Father, thank you for this last Lord's Day before this time of the year that we call Christmas when we celebrate and think about and remember and honor this great doctrine that God became man, that you dwelt among us, that the Son became truly human, a child, and humbled himself as Robert read from Philippians 2. Lord, these are glorious truths. Help us to think rightly about them. Help me to speak correctly and help us to apply them with discernment. For my friends that are in this room that don't know you, that are just here because it's close to Christmas and this just seems like the traditional thing to do. Lord, would you open their eyes to the beauty of Christ and the beauty of your gospel. The truths that we will think about today, it's a well that has no bottom. It is a continual supply of fresh water. May you use these truths and may I explain them sufficiently so that you might bring any dead hearts in this room to life by the power of your grace. And for those of us that have celebrated decades of Christmases, that have known you as one of your people, awaken us from our spiritual slothfulness and distraction and make us more like Jesus today. Lord, we don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to just critique and come out of the service with opinions and thoughts about this, that, or the other. We want to worship you. I want to worship you even as I'm communicating your word. So help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the doctrine of the incarnation? Well, stated very clearly, it's that God, the Son, became a man. It is the historic biblical teaching that God the Son, Jesus, in a particular time, approximately 2,000 years ago, has taken upon himself 
a fully and truly human nature by being born of the Virgin Mary by the power, conceived in this young virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So not by normal biological processes of procreation, but by a sovereign miracle of conception, the Holy Spirit comes upon this young girl and she conceives in her womb the child who is God in the flesh. That is the Plainly stated, the doctrine of the incarnation, this word incarnation, if you are a Spanish speaker or you're familiar with Latin, you know that it means the, in, the fleshing, the infleshing, when, when God became meat, so to speak, flesh. It's the doctrine that really holds the whole Bible together and is one of the doctrines that is absolutely essential to believe and confess if you are going to be a Christian. There are some doctors, doctrines that are very, very important, but are second level and third level, things that Christians can agree to disagree about. This is not one of them. But in our time and day, we need to be careful that we don't just let it be a doctrine that we merely confess and give a kind of quick assent to without really thinking about deeply, because this is, if it's true, the grandest of all miracles, as Lewis says, and the very central supreme mystery of the gospel, as Packer says, then it is worthy of our consideration because bound up in this doctrine is the very heart of the gospel itself. Now, one word about the word doctrine, if you're newer to the faith or if you're investigating Christianity, please don't be put off by the word doctrine. That's just a word that means a set of beliefs by which you live life. It's a kind of worldview. It's a prism. It's a set of assumptions and beliefs through which you navigate life. And we all have a doctrine. Some of us have good doctrine and some of us have bad doctrine, but we all have a doctrine. In fact, your doctrine may be that you don't like doctrine, but that is in fact a doctrine. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a prism. It's a set of truths by which we understand the world around us, and it's come to us through the Bible. So the incarnation, what does it mean that God became man? The early church hammered out this as they looked at scriptures. And in the first few centuries, there was this historic figure in the church named Athanasius, which is a wonderful name if you're thinking of a child. Uh, I believe my son and daughter-in-law have already chosen the name for my grandson, but if I had any say in this matter, I would want Athanasius to be at least a middle name. I'm not saying that it should be your first name in this time and day, but wouldn't that be wonderful? Athanasius. And then later on, a, a creed written in the 400s named the Chalcedonian Creed came up with these statements where they were trying to think rightly and biblically about this great truth of the incarnation. And they said that Jesus is one person, but he has two natures. So think of it this way, two what's, but one who. And these two what's, these two natures are inconfused. In other words, they're not, they're not sort of melded together in some strange, confused way. They are unchangeable. They're indivisible. They're inseparable. They're distinct, but they are united in the same person. Two what's, but one who. And if you think that that is hard to piece together, well, 
Yes, it is. It is the greatest mystery of all. Do not be discouraged by the fact that we cannot plumb the depths, that we cannot exhaust the glory of the truth of the incarnation. We can't. And that's the way it should be because it is the most supreme mystery of all. It is the great truth of our sovereign God and we are a finite creature that cannot fully understand these things. But... Although it is difficult to synthesize and hard to understand, we are at a kind of spiritual fork in the road when we come to a truth like this. On one hand, we can throw our hands up in the air and just say, oh, this is hard. Let's just make church light. Let's just kind of sing songs that make us happy. Let's just not think deeply about these things. This is spiritual laziness. And we don't want to be caught up in this kind of consumeristic, dumbed down to the lowest common denominator type of Christianity. That is unhelpful. And eventually that type of expression of the Christian faith slides into an unchristian expression of the faith. The second thing that we can do is let this push us into a kind of unbelief a kind of ag- agnostic sort of perception of this truth and, and say, well, this is just kind of above us. We can't know and, and we can't really get a hold of this. And, but that's not the truth either. Although we cannot exhaust the glory of the incarnation, we can see in Scripture and we can go as far as we can go in Scripture and we can know that what he has revealed to us, we should know and we should struggle and strive to apply to our lives. That's why the scriptures tells us in 1 Peter that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And this is one of the central truths that he has given us for life and godliness. Our third option is to let, let the truth, the mystery, the difficulty of thinking about how can Jesus be truly God and yet truly man like us, yet without sin. How, how can those two things come together? Let us cause that to think deeply and know all that we can so that when we have seen all that we can see and when we strive and strain to apply it to our lives, we can worship him more deeply. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that, or catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And understanding who Christ is, the loveliness of Christ, the glory of Christ, the person of Christ, the nature of Christ is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian and to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So friends, here's my point that I want us to understand as we're going to read some scriptures and think about this is that I want us to understand that let's not cede this glorious doctrine to a cute manger scene only to be displayed at Christmas time. And I am not against nativity scenes necessarily. But I'm saying let's not cede this to the unknowable or to the seasonal, let's look at this and make this part of our faith. Friends, this is part of, and this is a verse that I come back to often when I think about the glorious prism and multifaceted, stunning glory of the gospel. Peter says something really, really incredible in his first chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He's speaking of the Old Testament prophets about how they were speaking prophetically of Christ. And of course, one of the things that we know that the Old Testament prophets were speaking prophetically about Christ is that he would be, in Isaiah, uh, that he would be a vir- he would be born of a virgin. So he would be born, that this Messiah would be born 
born. So even in the Old Testament, there's these shadows of the incarnation. And this is part of what Peter says are the things, listen to this, in which angels long to look. So think of all the things that the angels have seen through the centuries, glorious things. They've seen creation. They've seen, they've seen, they've seen the exodus. They've seen miracles. They've seen the resurrection. And these are things, the incarnation being central among them, that glorious beings like angels, at least the picture I have in my mind, are like on their tippy toes, longing to look into the very things that we are looking at today and studying and gleaning from. Friends, that's a thought, that majestic heavenly beings are longing to look into the things that we have the privilege to study and know and live from today. So, question number two is, and how does this incarnation, this God became flesh, the Son became a man? Again, if I could state it somewhat simplistically and pragmatically, how does it help us? What does it do for us as believers? Well, we could spend a lot of time contemplating that question, but let me just focus on two aspects that I want us to consider about what the incarnation, that the Word became flesh, does for us, how it helps us. Two aspects. First, for our salvation. Secondly, for our sanctification. So first, for our salvation. Well, first, quite simply, it makes it, it, makes it possible. It makes our salvation possible. If God were not to come to us, we would never be able to come to him. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, there's this really incredible phrase that Jonah utters from the belly of the whale. And it becomes a kind of prism through which I think becomes the New Testament doctrine of salvation. He says that salvation is of the Lord. And that's an easy place to be at when you're in the belly of a whale and there's no other hope. You don't work yourself out of that. Salvation is of the Lord. Friends, the Bible is clear in texts like Ephesians chapter 2 that says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the course of this world, being led by the prince of the power of the air. And we are by nature sons of disobedience, children of wrath. There's this nature that we have as being part of the fall. We're all born as children of Adam and Eve, and we have this nature. It's not a neutral nature. It's not a good nature. It's a fallen nature. It's a nature that Paul describes as being dead in sin in Ephesians chapter 2. And later on in Romans chapter 8, he speaks about the ability of this nature, and he says that the mind or the heart or the person that is set on the flesh cannot obey God. They can't. There's an inability. We're dead in our sins. So there's no, friends, this is at the very heart of the message of the Bible. There is no working your way back to God. He must come to us. And the incarnation at its simplest and clearest level is the great truth that we don't go to God. He comes to us. So it makes salvation possible, and it's foreshadowed for us all the way back in the first few chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 3, 15, after the fall, after Adam and Eve reject God, and now God is issuing really his consequences to Adam and Eve, and he's issuing his consequences to the serpent 
who is this personification of Satan, and he says to the serpent that, that there's coming an offspring, there's coming a seed from this woman. You will bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. And in fact, in Romans, later on in Romans, we see that extrapolated where we see that Jesus will crush Satan under his feet on the cross. And so salvation is made possible by Jesus coming to us. We don't come to him, friends. This is good news. Second way that the incarnation helps us for our salvation is that it, you know, follow me here. This is really important for us to see. It makes us, for those of us that are believers in Jesus, it makes us holy. Let me say a little bit more. It satisfies God's holiness by making those he saves holy through the holiness of the Son become man. So the incarnation, this doctrine, this truth that God would become man and die for those whom he saves solves really the great dilemma of the Bible. We were created to commune with God in the early chapters of Genesis. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, we see this, this recreation where God is promising to commune with his people, that he will be their God, and they will be his people, and he will dwell with them forever. So we have this creation that God is dwelling with his people. We have this final promise that he will dwell with his people. But in the middle of that, we have this dilemma, and the dilemma is our sin and God's holiness. And what has our sin done? It has caused us to be excommunicated, to be kicked out of God's presence. And because of the sin of every person in this room and every other person that has ever lived except for Jesus, we cannot in and of ourselves commune with God, which is what salvation is to be with him forever. So how can sinners be made right with God? How does he do that? How can they dwell with him? Well, the incarnation solves this problem. Let's look at how God solves that. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 4, we'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, um, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through the end of the chapter are some of the most glorious verses in the Bible. I know I say that about a lot of verses in the Bible, but there are a lot of glorious verses in the Bible. In fact, the whole Bible is glorious. Some of it, some of it's just jabs and some of it's haymakers. And this is verse 10 through 18. This is power punch. Let me read to you verses 10 and 11. I need my glasses. For it was fitting that he, that's speaking of the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, so in other words, the saving of many people, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what's going on in verse 10 is that speaking of the Father, in the execution of his plan of redemption, it's fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation, speaking of the Son, perfect through his actual suffering as a man. Verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, all who all have one source. So he's summarizing it 
Here he's saying that for he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus who sanctifies us, saves us, and those who he is sanctifying, they all come from the same source. So this is speaking to the incarnation, the manhood, the humanity of Jesus and his real suffering, his real temptation. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Skip down to verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, this is speaking of Jesus the Son, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. (laughs) So what is verses 14 and 15 saying? It's saying that Jesus came and partook of the same things. He became like us to offer up a sacrifice to satisfy not ultimately the devil, but the given power he has granted to him by God to be God's sort of executioner as a consequence of man's rebellion against God, his limited authority in that sense, so that he could destroy the power of Satan, that is the devil, and deliver all those through his sacrifice, his ransom on the cross, those that were subject to lifelong slavery, spiritual slavery, being bound in the deadness of their sin. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning us, people that believe in him. Therefore, verse 17, listen to this, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I want to highlight something here. In verse 17, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus had to be made like us so that he could die for us and satisfy the punishment for our sins. Now, where does this necessity come from? Why does it have to be like this? I mean, couldn't, let's zoom out a little bit here. I know it's been a little intense, but let's zoom out here and let's just sort of think, sort of philosophically, couldn't have God just sort of waved a sort of magic saving wand and just sort of declared us all saved? Well, on some level, maybe that can be the case, but according to how God executes his character, God cannot be inconsistent with his holiness and his justice. And he has created a world that is to be stewarded by man, by flesh, and that flesh rebelled against him Again, all according to his plan. And so in order for God to be just and truly loving and holy and consistent, he needs to lovingly maintain his justice by punishing that which has rebelled against his holiness. God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't just kind of say, ah, okay, let's just kind of get over it. So in order for God to maintain his holiness, his righteousness... He has bound himself to his nature and it made the incarnation of Christ necessary. That's what verse 17 is saying when he says, therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So without the incarnation, there is no 
salvation. Jesus has to become like you. And what does Jesus do when he becomes like us? He, where we have all failed, he succeeds. He's perfect. He is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, just two chapters over, verse 14. Since then we have, again speaking of Jesus, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, meaning he's come down from heaven to earth in his incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now verses 14 and 16 that I just read are, are just full of glorious thoughts. Jesus has become like us in every respect, yet without sin. Friends, this is a well, that, again, that has no bottom. What does that mean? What type of human nature did Jesus have? Well, he becomes like us in a sense, but unlike us in the sense that he never sins. Jesus, we, we are the abnormal ones, the fallen ones. Jesus assumes a perfect human nature. And through his perfection and his obedience and the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, he resists temptation and he, here's the thought I want you to have, he wins back. He reclaims human righteousness through his life and then he lays it down on the cross as a sacrifice and it is a satisfactory sacrifice because it's a perfect sacrifice and it appeases, it satisfies God's wrath. That's what the word propitiation means. He lays down his perfection and because he has enough righteousness, more than enough righteousness, an infinite amount of righteousness to satisfy the punishment for all of the sins of all of the people across all time that would ever trust in him, his sacrifice through his true humanity on the cross satisfies, answers the dilemma. How can man, how can flesh, how can fallen flesh ever be restored to dwell with God because Jesus has restored in his righteousness, his sacrifice, our ability to dwell with God. And none of this happens, friends, without the incarnation. And the incarnation is not merely a cute little baby in a manger scene. It is an act of assault of the God of heaven recapturing the righteousness that was lost through our sin. And that's what Jesus is doing in his real life, in his real humanity, in his perfect humanity, and his sacrificial death. And he lays it down on the cross. And then how do these dead, unrighteous, rebellious people like us actually appropriate that? How does it go from being Jesus' righteousness to ours? Here's where the good news gets even gooder. It's not merely by human effort. Well, you see this. Work your way back. Be so moved that you desire to change. The glorious news of the gospel is that God in his kindness makes dead hearts 
alive. He chooses to save a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue, and he moves on their dead hearts. He regenerates that dead heart. He causes it to be born again. He equips it now with the gift of the new heart, which is faith, which the person who now has been brought back to life is able to finally see and trust, not in themselves, and turn away from their sin, but to trust in Jesus who has lived the life that we could never live in his real life and incarnation and who has died the sacrificial death that we could not ultimately die and pay and who has been raised again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And by the gift of regeneration, the gift of a new heart that God gives a person when he saves him and the gift of faith, we now can see. And when we see, he becomes irresistibly lovely and beautiful and we put our hope and faith in him and we friends by that faith that we must exercise but is a gift of God we are justified we're made right and all all of the righteousness that Jesus died and lived for lived for and died is now ours and all the sin that was ours he takes and he moves it as far as the east is from the west all because of the incarnation so the incarnation, I hope you see, is necessary for your salvation. And it makes us holy. It's the way that we can stand before God. But you might be saying, and let's land this plane now, you might be saying, okay, this is wonderful, but I sure don't feel very holy. I believe these things, but I do not feel very holy. Well, welcome to the tribe. None of us very often feel very holy. So the incarnation is not just for our salvation and these objective truths of the gospel, but it is for our sanctification. It's for our growing in Christ, our slow plotting, our fighting, our scraping transformation into his image as he's promised. Because one of the truths that he promised about salvation is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He says that this is what salvation ultimately results in, that you will be like Jesus. And so everything that I just said is the moment of rebirth, and now we're living here on this earth until he calls us home, and that is the process of sanctification. So what does the incarnation, so think about it, what I've just said is that the incarnation, it makes you alive, Jesus' life, his righteousness, his real humanity is credited to you. It guarantees this future final state of glory but what about this gap? What about between now that I know Christ and this time when I'm struggling and striving? Why didn't he just beam me up? Why do I have to deal with this life? What does the incarnation do for me now? How does it help me fight sin? I, I believe these things. I, I trust in Jesus. I'm sick of my sin. I'm, I hate it. And, and, I, and I hate the things that, that I still struggle with. But, but what does the incarnation have to do with it? I believe I'm saved from them, but I'm dismayed that I still struggle with them. Does anybody have these thoughts? And the truth is, is that the incarnation isn't just a doctrine that hangs 30,000 feet in the level in the over our heads for our salvation, but it comes down into our daily lives for our sanctification, for the fight that we have to fight to become who we are promised to be. 
How does it happen? How does it do that? Well, let's go back into Hebrews. What does it say in that Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 text? It says that he identifies with us. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might, listen to this, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it's not just in future time, hovering over your head, some theological truth of salvation. It's in time, it's now. The incarnation, the humanity of Jesus is here now. He identifies with you. He was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He's a merciful high priest. This is what Matthew says about Jesus in Matthew 11. This is glorious. This is, not what, this, is what, this is Matthew quoting Jesus, where Jesus says this about himself. And some of us have grown up in dysfunctional situations, and it's very hard for you to see this truth. I recognize that. I recognize it maybe because you've grown up in some messed up subculture. It's very hard for you to picture God like this, but I believe in a God who is miraculous, and maybe one of the great miracles that he wants to do in your life is to, is to dismantle the fallen notions of God's goodness in your heart and let you see the heart of Christ as he tells us about it in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, why are we heavy laden? Why do we labor? It's not just because the world is hard. It's not just because things have been done to us. It's not just because we didn't have a great dad or our boss didn't understand us or our spouses and all that they should have been and, or our kids rebelled. Friends, we're, 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 we're all a mixture of our own sin and sin that has been committed against us. Some of us, we're, we can't, we just, we live in a world that wants to be victims. Everybody, oh, if everybody just this, that, and the other. Friends, most of us, the primary reason we are heavy laden is not because we're victims, but because we are perpetrators. And we're heavy laden because of our sin, and Jesus is speaking to you. He's not speaking to you because you're primarily a victim. He's speaking to us because we are perpetrators. We are heavy laden. We labor because of the sin of self-righteousness that we have given ourselves over, and it is exhausting. And he says, I will give you rest. And then listen to what he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. How does Jesus describe himself? He's not angry. His arms are not folded. He's not disgusted with you if you will merely come to him. The only people that Jesus gets angry at in the Gospels is not people who are beaten up by sin that come to him, but religious elites in their self-righteousness who reject him. Come to me, he says, and he says, come to me because he's a merciful and sympathetic high priest who has tasted what we have tasted, yet he has endured and defeated it. Friends, that's the incarnation. Prophetically in Isaiah 53 verse 3, speaking of Jesus, it says that he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. 
Jesus knows your situation. He knows your sin. He knows that thing that nobody else knows that you're battling with. He knows the gap between what is objectively true about you and your faith in Jesus' work on the cross and the way you're actually living. Jesus knows every centimeter of that gap. And he doesn't stand detached from it. He wants to come down in it because he's a merciful, sympathetic high priest. And what does he do secondly after he identifies with he? He doesn't, he doesn't just, because here's the deal, friends. Just, just identifying, just identifying with you is not going to do much for you. It's kind of like the, the accountability group of young guys that are struggling with a particular sin and they just get together every week and they just tell each other how they're struggling. And like, they just actually, just mere identification. Man, I, I feel you, bro. I feel you, bro. On some level, that helps. But we need somebody to do, do more than just identify with us and feel for us. We need somebody to actually help us. So Jesus doesn't just identify with us. He actually helps us in our time of need. That's what, that's what verse 18 says of, of Hebrews 2, that he helps us in our time of need. And that we can come to him boldly in our time of need. So how does he help us? Well, friends, I don't have time to survey the New Testament, but just let me give you a few highlights. One is that you, if you are a Christian, this is more true of you than any sin or anything that you are facing right now. The Spirit of God lives in you, and you are His. You're His. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, if you're a Christian, you're not in the flesh. It doesn't mean that you still don't struggle with the flesh, but the truest thing about you is you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's why John in 1 John chapter 4, I think it is, says that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So how do you... How do you how do you appropriate the truth of the incarnation in our daily lives of struggle? We remember that Jesus by his spirit lives in me and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world or the thing that still resides in my flesh. And he's given us his word. He's given us his, not only his spirit, but he's given us his word that we can take in and we can grow and we can be strengthened by it and we can listen to it preached. And I pray, I pray, I don't say this, I, I don't say this presumptuously, I just pray this is the case, that as we gather every time, regardless of whether or not the sermon is good or not, or a home run or a double or a bloop single to right or a pass ball, I, I don't know that we can gather together and as we read the word and we hear the word exalted even through the means of an imperfect person that it can build and strengthen your life. Friends, glorious things are happening when the church gathers. We read his word and we in all of the mess of our lives, we with one heart say, yes, this is true. And friends, when that happens, when you give yourself to that, when you put yourself underneath that fountain of God's word, whether you feel it or not, something's happening to you. You're being strengthened by his spirit and his word and he is building you little by little. Friends, it's happening right now. I pray it's happening right now in your life. And he gives us his body, his church. We encourage one another. We build one another up. We grow together. It's a holy temple. We rebuke each other. We exhort each other. We, we be patient. We, we are to be patient with each other, to help the weak, be patient with them all. He helps us. He comes to us in spiritual, mystical, sovereign ways. 
ways that we can't feel or touch, ways that we are often unaware of, but ways that are simple and ordinary through his means of grace, his spirit, his word, his people, and he makes us stronger and we can fight. And you know what? When we fall, when we mess up, when we give in again, here's the truth of the gospel. Here's the truth of the Bible. A righteous man falls seven times, but yea, he rises eight. And we live together. So because he came to us, we can come to him. Friends, it doesn't just happen. It's not just some sort of no effort on our part. He made us alive so that we can strive for the upward call in Christ, which is already ours. Why has God allowed us to fight for and struggle and strain for something that he has promised will already happen? Well, evidently, because he deems that he will be glorified through our striving for what is already ours. So through your struggle, through your strain, through you believing and trusting in the incarnation, God intends to use our scrappy, imperfect lives to be a kind of aroma that he uses to bring somebody else to salvation. What a glorious privilege. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this truth. Lord, we want to live from the glory of the incarnation. Not through figurines for a couple weeks in December. But through the living and abiding word. Through the daily manna of this truth. Thank you that Jesus became a man and that is the only way that you could save us and still be consistent with your holy nature. But Lord, his incarnation doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us. It, it's here for us now. He meets us, Lord, he meets us. There's somebody in this room who's just being savaged and ravaged and beat up. Lord, meet them in their time of need. Lord, blow the dust from their, the lens of their eyes. Blow, blow, blow your Holy Spirit a fresh wind so that they can see this truth and live from it and repent and turn afresh to you. Lord, do it, I pray. And for my friends in this room who don't know you, Lord, I... I know these have been lofty ideas, but show them, show them, their, show them their complete desperation, their, their total inability to make themselves right. They're here for a reason. They must be interested in something. Lord, awaken, awaken faith. Give them a new heart, I pray, Lord. I pray that you'd save somebody in this room that came in not knowing you and that you would see and show them that Jesus, God, became a man and lay down his life so that whosoever believes in him can live with you forever. Lord, this is marvelous. Lord, would you do that in this moment right now? And Lord, as we see 
this dear sister in our church be baptized in, in just a moment. And as we hear the words of her testimony, the glorious testimony of your saving grace in her life, Lord, would you, would you help us see that it's because Jesus became a man that you saved Kristen and that you gave her a new heart. Lord, may we rejoice in that and may it cause faith to swell up in us that you do this over and over and over again. Be glorified now as we worship you and observing this baptism and as we sing and pray in Jesus' name.